Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We want to start today talking about something we talk a lot about here in Southeast Michigan, this idea of two Detroits. It's a phrase we hear a lot. It's a phrase we hear people say a lot in a lot of different contexts as everyone tries to make sense of the frenetic pace of change in places like downtown and midtown against the failure of that change to reach some parts of the city at all. Young versus old, black versus white, privileged versus unprivileged, this discussion takes on a number of different iterations. But how accurate are those lenses we keep looking through to make sense of all of this. Is this really becoming two different cities? Or was it always split? And if we are seeing deeper divisions today, how do we get to the concept of one Detroit for all, a phrase that Mayor Mike Duggan has adopted for his administration? Today at 6 p.m. at the Detroit Historical Museum, a panel discussion is going to address the many different sides of this debate. It is organized by Harvey Ovshinsky, and Chastity Pratt-Dossi from Bridge Magazine will be a panelist. Joining us now to talk more about this panel and about this issue is Harvey Ovshinsky. He's the co-host of Detroit, A Tale of Two Cities, a panel discussion about Detroit's comeback and who it benefits. Harvey Welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, Stephen, it's always a pleasure to uh, talk with you and ask the right questions. You've just stolen my introduction <laughs> for tonight's uh, panel. That's right. You feel free to just take that. <laughs> uh, also with us, of course, is Chastity Pratt-Dossie. She's a reporter. And let's give credit to Peter uh, Werby, who's the co-host of uh, tonight's the, panel, that's and right. to the Detroit Historical Museum. They have this incredible speaker series every third Thursday, yeah. and Peter and I were invited to... Uh, to talk and ask questions and create some an event and we did and this is how it turned out yeah. we're very excited yeah no i think i think there are a lot of people in fact who are quite excited uh, about this event harvey let's start with the idea of two detroits are there two detroits are there trouble uh, troublesome aspects of the idea of there being two detroits or is it more like my Duggan says uh, that that we're moving more toward the idea of one Detroit for all. Well, in in our history, I don't think we've ever been one Detroit, and I don't think we ever can be, and I'm not sure we should be. I think we are more than two Detroits. You know, Detroit is, is, I I have always, as a former Detroiter, now living in Ann Arbor, I've always valued the city for its humanity Mm -hmm. and its people and its uh, creativity and its innovation and um, its ability to, as Bette Midler used to say when she performed at Masonic Auditorium, she loved playing Detroit because she never met so many people who knew how to make the best out of such an impossible situation. And that requires not just white people and black people and old people and young people uh, and people with money and poor people. It just requires all of us. Uh, sometimes together and sometimes by ourselves, and I think that's our strength. Hmm. Uh, Chastity, of course, <clears throat> that that phrase, to Detroit's, is really proxy, I think, when people say it for lots of other things, right? Uh, it is pro- proxy for discussion of race. It is proxy for discussion of economic class. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and those are things that I think we are seeing uh, accentuated a little more today than we maybe did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, that the changes that are taking place in the city really remind us of how disparate uh, things are between black and white, between 
rich and poor in Detroit? Uh, absolutely. Times of change bring about, you know, people's most innate emotions, right? And mm-hmm. and one of those is, you know, if I want to get ahead, who's going to stop me? Who's going to be in the way? What's going to be in the way? And this us versus them bubbles up to the top in any any um, era of change because change is hard, right? And that's what we're going through right now. We're going through another, um, you know, spell of uh, growing pains of, you know, self-determination, all that good stuff. But, I mean, this is Detroit, and we're in America. We've always had problems, you know. <laughs> yes, right. We've always had problems in diversity. Um, you know, we whether you like it or not, whether you have your own emotions and feelings and opinions about what diversity and inclusion means, it's just it's just the way it is. Yeah. We have a diverse community. People are not the same, period. That's how it is. No matter how you feel about it, it's the truth. And we're all trying to figure out where we fit in and if we can get what we want out of the situation. So if Mike Duggan is saying one Detroit for all well well hell we know it's one Detroit but everybody has to find what they can get out of it what they can give to it what it means to them and you know again this being America we ain't gonna all agree (laughs) we're not gonna all get along but I mean you know it's a civil society we hope and and that's um, I think the the point of these discussions how do we have a civil society and everyone get what they want out of this one time and space so so one of the things that lurks in the back of this uh, discussion, though, is the question of fairness, right? That if there are two Detroits, one that's rising, the other that's either static or falling, uh, how easy is it to move between those places if you're black or white? How easy is it to move between those places if you're rich or poor? And and I think that gets us to a, a, a more heightened tension in the conversation because uh, America is not a place where fairness. Right. Somebody's trying to hold me back. Right. And take uh, what's mine and move my cheese. And of course, <laughs> uh, historically in Detroit, we've always, I think, had a real problem uh, with the idea that somebody else can get ahead, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that we're necessarily falling behind. Uh, yeah. the idea. And there are consequences. My father, as you know, Stephen, hi, Chastity, um, was a physicist, and he used to remind me that for every action, hello, uh-huh. there is a reaction. Sure. There, are, there are consequences. So the good news is you've got, you know, this new Detroit, this Detroit miracle, as the New York Times once called it, mm-hmm. uh, this uh, comeback city. Um, I mean, Detroit has become the new black essentially, um, in terms of how people have romantically embraced what's going on in the city. But there are consequences, and there are people. One of the reasons I'm looking forward to the, not only meeting Chastity tonight, but the rest of the panel is we've got um, Kevin Johnson from mm-hmm. the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation, mm-hmm. um, who's going, he's the CEO and president, and he's going to talk about not only the positive things, but what his organization and others in the city and other people can do to contribute to to reduce the, the amount of negative consequences of the economic um, development that's happening in the city. And I want to hear his perspective. Hmm. Uh, and Tawana uh, Petty, uh, speaking of diversity, she's a poet and an activist and <laughs> a very articulate person on this subject. She's part of the panel, Michael Hodges, mm-hmm. the fine arts uh, writer from the Detroit News. So there's that diversity, and they're all, along with Chastity and me and Peter, we're all going to try to address this issue that you are raising um, and really ask, I'm looking forward to the questions. I don't have the answers, and I don't think Peter does. <laughs> we used to yeah, back yeah. in the day, but I don't have all the... <laughs> I, I've got a lot of questions, so I'm looking forward to talking to the panel 
and the audience, by the way. Audience participation tonight is critical. Although I have to say, before I forget, register, pre-register now. We, it's a free event, but it's... it's the, but you the want people going, to say they're coming. Yeah, yeah talk to Char- Charnay at Detroit Historical Museum <laughs> if you hope to come. Don't think you can get there simply by approaching, going to the door. You may be able to. I hope you can. But call the Historical Museum and, and get booked because yeah. this is just... Yeah, you know what, though? Um, I think the thing that um, a lot of Detroiters are um, clinging to and really trying to um, get the rest of the world to understand is, yes, we are two Detroits, but when you say Detroit is on a comeback, that's mm-hmm. just not true. It's yeah. a flat-out lie. Downtown is coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Midtown, Midtown coming is back. coming back. Yep. And un- unless you're defining yeah. the whole city by the 7.2, Detroit as a whole is not coming back. And we're not going to see Detroit come back. And w- when I talk about Detroit, I talk about people, right. you know. The, the city is not a place. It's not grass and dirt and land. It's yep. people, right? And the people of Detroit are not going to see a comeback until we see, you know, some jobs, some, you know, something to replace all those, you know, jobs that were good paying and went to people who were, you know, had limited education replaced with something, you know, uh, similar yeah. or unless Something you know better. we're going to wait a generation from now to see our our kids be better educated to take advantage of the jobs that are here that people aren't educated yeah. enough to take advantage of yeah. the people of the city of detroit are not seeing a comeback 7.2 is yeah and one of the difficulties i think uh, dealing with that which is absolutely true is i can't think of a city where you have been able to lift people in poor neighborhoods yep. without the injection of money into and jobs into uh, wealthier parts of the city, right? So this idea that uh, what's happening in downtown and midtown uh, uh, had to happen before you could get to the neighborhoods is one of the things that's very tough. I, I have always said that I think it's the job of city government to figure that out, right? I agree. Uh, to 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 play the 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 sort of role of uh, dispenser, I guess, of benefits uh, from the things that are happening. Mm. So you've got people spending money uh, fixing up buildings downtown or building stadiums. You figure out a way to make yeah. sure that some of the benefit of that goes to people who aren't yeah. in those areas. And, and and I think that's where we're failing here in Detroit. Is that uh, ten years into uh, this this sort of rise of downtown and midtown, nobody is is doing what they should be doing. I think to make sure that what happens here spills over. Yeah, and, and you're know, both yeah, right ahead. because the, gentrification has brought us to the table tonight. But the real issue is poverty. Forty percent of Detroit's community is impoverished, and um, it's not benefiting from everyday life other than what they create their own, let alone what's happening in downtown. There's a great book, and the Free Press, John Gallagher, and mm-hmm. the Bridge Magazine, Bridge did this, you know, Jaffe, reviewed, the Detro- uh, there's a great book, The Divided City, Poverty and Prosperity mm-hmm. in Urban America. Write it down. And in fact, we're talking with Alan Malik oh, man. in the next segment. <laughs> you can talk about gentrification, enjoy yourself, knock yourself up, but that's not the issue. Mm-hmm. The issue is what you two have just mentioned, and that is the poverty, the joblessness, the reality of the experience that we see who live here or nearby and not what the national media sees when they scratch the surface. We are so hot. We are so good copy. You know, there's um, 
<laughs> the new video game called <laughs> Detroit Becomes Human. It's well, really, you know what I've always one said. of the hottest <laughs> video games around. It's called Detroit Become Human. And, it, and it's profound and thrilling, according to the press reviews, because everyone... I actually is, haven't seen that. Oh, <laughs> check it out. <laughs> Book that guy. Yeah, right. Like, what, 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 what? Detroit, the video game. Never yeah, it's I called Detroit Become that. Human, and then it's a hit. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Jess. No, what I've always said is this whole us versus them thing and the whole gentrification, um, you know, debate. Um, gentrification is for the rich. Mm-hmm. Look up the word gentry. Sure. Gentry, it's rich, and 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 for people to um, to even assume or to say in any sort of way that gentrification is going to help the the city, that's not what it's meant to do. Gentrification is meant to help the people who are rich get richer. <laughs> I mean, the seven point two miles of downtown and midtown being gentrified has got nothing to do with anybody else but people who got money. I have period. to disagree. You, there are benefits if you love sporting events, if you love recreation, if you love the symphony, if you love fine dining. You got money. Detroit. Those parts <laughs> you got of Detroit money to spend is, on those things. It's a place to be. The question is, what's in it for the rest of us? Yeah. Well, and that's that's that difficulty, right? Uh, the, the difficulty of translating that that investment, that that new excitement in those places to places that that um, that don't have it and and are not right. going to have it. I mean, one of the other dynamics I think is really interesting in Detroit right now is uh, and Chastity, you could certainly relate to this. When we were growing up here uh, in the city, everybody was leaving, right? Oh, yeah. uh, people were moving to the suburbs and uh, the criticism was why don't you stay here in Detroit? How come you have to to go out to Oakland County or Macomb or these other places to to live? That's hurting the city. It's really interesting that now you have people moving into the city and we're saying, no, 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 we don't want you here. Right, right, right. <laughs> right? Well, you know what? I, 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 I don't have much to say about, you know, telling rich people not to come and bring their money. I mean, you know, I want to be rich someday. I want to be able to afford one of those lofts downtown, right, and I'm sure right. we all do. <laughs> so, I mean, th- this is a city. If you're a cosmopolitan place and you're sophisticated, of course you have people of all, you know, classes. You mm-hmm. have rich people. You got mm-hmm. middle class people. The problem is we got too many people who are disenfranchised really and don't poor. have jobs. Yeah. So when jobs come back and the rest of the city is lifted up to a better, you know, to, that poverty rate goes to shrinking, then we can say the people of the city of Detroit are going to come back. Are, are, are benefiting. Can I also amend the conversation? Sure. It's not everybody, you know, not only rich people and uh, white people coming back to Detroit, only young people and only old people without children are coming back. People with families are not rushing back That's really true. to Midtown, Cass Quarter, whatever you want to call it. The, re- the only reason I left Lafayette Park, the only reason I left Detroit and moved to Gross Point was because my kids couldn't go to school in Detroit anymore. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't. And while, and the Gross Point was the closest experience with trees and porches and sidewalks that I could experience my Detroit, my Mumford High School Detroit, you know, the only suburb I could choose. Mm-hmm. It's education as well. Let's add that to the table. Old people without children and young people without children, they're the ones who are moving in. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Harvey Ovshinsky. He is the co-host of an event 
Detroit, A Tale of Two Cities is a panel discussion that's taking place today at the Detroit Historical Museum from 6 to 8 p.m. Also with us is Chastity Pratt-Dossi. She's a reporter with Bridge Magazine. She's one of the participants. on. But pre-register, otherwise I can't guarantee. That's right. you gotta, you got you to pre-register, gotta otherwise at the Historical uh, Museum. we may not have seats for you really? at this uh, event. Who knew? Um, if Who you knew? Wanna, <laughs> that's right. Who knew it would be so popular? Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. Tell us what you think of the concept of two Detroits. Is that a... Accurate? Is that an accurate way to think of what is going on in Detroit right now? If it is, what do you think we ought to do about that? How do we make some of these great things that are happening in downtown and midtown matter to people who live in much different places uh, in Detroit? As always, the, th- the number is 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we will work you into the conversation. Katie on uh, Twitter says, the issues are deeper. There has been a spatial racism issue in all of southeast Michigan for decades. Gentrification mostly relates to the inequality surrounding quality of living environments. We also have to think about food deserts, water shutoffs, health care options, schools, transportation, employment opportunities, etc. It started with slavery and then Jim Crow, and now it has evolved into institutional and Spatial racism. Uh, again, mm-hmm. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Philip in Royal Oak. Philip, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Hey. Um, I just wanted to follow up on something you you were stating, Stephen, about um, this being a great opportunity uh, to build a different model of reinvestment mm-hmm. um, instead of you know, gentrification, you know, we have poor people and rich people living together. Mm-hmm. But um, my other comment is that, you know, I, I think we're failing, at least the city's failing in, you know, financing a new stadium, um, but not holding the people benefiting from that stadium uh, to, to benefit the community. Mm-hmm. So you want to build a stadium, why don't you help fund the building of a new school? Mm-hmm. You want to redevelop the old train site? Why don't you remediate some of the pollution, uh, polluted sites that litter the city? Yeah. So those are my comments. Yeah. I'll take the answer. Thank you for Philip. I really appreciate the call and the comments. I, I, I think that those examples in particular uh, are uh, they sort of highlight the thing that I'm talking about that I feel like we're failing at here yeah. in Detroit, and that I feel like other cities. Uh, in, in some cases, are doing a little a little better than we are. Uh, if you think of stadium deals around the country, every city uh, gets rung up for some sort of public subsidy uh, when they build a stadium. The question is, uh, what do you get in return yeah. right. for that so, investment? And we, we're really bad at that here. So he, he asked some very valid questions, and it, it reminds me of the whole argument about com- community benefits, Right. Community benefits ordinance says you invest or you're building something, what, $75 million or more, you Mm -hmm. have to, you know, come to an agreement with the community about what you're going to do to help them. That was the biggest argument in this community. And 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 it's a long time to get there. It it speaks to what his point is. You know, if Detroit has these really seemingly intractable issues with poverty, why why would this, you know, be so desperate to to just um, say, please build it, come build it. And if you don't, 
do anything for our community. That's fine too. Just come and build it. That 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 rings of like intense desperation yeah. on it the gets part of our the city. mentality, right? Uh, that we yeah. need this so badly. That, that, we, that we'll do anything, and even if it doesn't benefit those in the community who need um, who need jobs, who right. need you know yeah. some some assistance. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I'm looking forward to hearing from Kevin Johnson tonight. He's mm-hmm. from the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation, mainly because. Not only is he good at what he does in terms of economic driving in the community, mm-hmm. he's not from here. He doesn't carry our baggage, our history. You and I, the three of us, have been here before <laughs> on Detroit, you know, Renaissance Center, Trapper's Alley, mm-hmm. all this stuff, nothing new to us. But you mentioned other communities are doing better. Atlanta is one of those communities, and that's where Kevin is from. I cannot wait to hear his take on, uh, and he's only been here two months, right. on right. what he has to say to answer your question, Steve. Yeah. Uh, let's take uh, another call here. Teresa in Detroit. Teresa, welcome to Detroit today. Hi. Hi, Teresa. I uh, disagree with the caller who said, question the education of Detroit. And I think that there are a lot of choices for parents in the in the uh, private sector and the charter sector of uh, Detroit. Specifically, you know, there's the Cornerstone School is in Detroit. So mm-hmm. I disagree when he said he kids could just couldn't get go to school there. I wonder if he really tried to find well, a good space. Yeah, I know the corners. I did a documentary about them. I know them very well. They're great, and there's wonderful educational opportunities. If you want to go out of your way to bus your kids to uh, the, the school that uh, Kevin and I, no, Kevin, uh, Stephen and I are both familiar with, mm-hmm. UD Jesuit High School, mm-hmm. and there are other opportunities I could have sent. And, and by the way, when my children were young, Cornerstone did not exist. So the, the choices were very limited. So you may be right. There may be more choices. But, uh, and, and you are certainly right. The private school at this point were the only uh, opportunities. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, and that speaks to the lack of choice then yes. for, for most lack people in this yes. city, right? Yes. I mean, uh, most people in the city can't afford to send their kids uh, to private exactly. schools. A lot of people in the city can't manage to get their kids all the way across the city to the one quality option that they're able to find. What we haven't done here in Detroit, and this is over decades, not just over the last 10 years, uh, is make sure that there are quality options available in every neighborhood. There should be quality public options available in every neighborhood. That's what State constitution is actually, I think, supposed to to, to guarantee. Uh, we, we haven't done that. We haven't done that in in decades here. Uh, I agree. In in Detroit and and uh, the, the the charter and private options we have now, I don't think uh, are sufficient. In that. Well, you know, this is my special place. When right. Talk about I was going to say, Chastity spent a long time writing about schools. <laughs> and, and yeah, <laughs> while I do, um, you know, I, I respect what she's saying that there are some quality options. Um, they're not that not enough. I mean, you need look no further than our test scores, mm-hmm. than our graduation yep. rate, than our college going rate, than our yep. college readiness rate to know that the the children of the city of Detroit are being deserved by the public education system that has yeah. been largely destabilized over the past twenty years. Uh, much more destabilized than. Anywhere in the country. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, Harvey Ofshinsky and Chastity Pratt-Dossi, thanks very much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Uh, Also remember, 6 to 8 p.m. tonight at the Detroit Historical Museum. You need to pre-register for the event, but it is free. When we come back, we're going to talk to the author of a new book, 
called The Divided City, which looks at the racial disparities between Detroit's residency and its workforce. Also, don't forget, if you miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. Go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about the idea of two Detroits. Is Detroit separated, segregated even, into two different places, one downtown and midtown, where we have all seen tremendous strides, tremendous new investment take place, and the rest of the city, much of which is still mired in deep poverty and isolation. Uh, tonight at 6 p.m. at the Detroit Historical Museum, you have a chance to go out and discuss this in person with Harvey Ovshinsky and Chastity Pratt-Dossie, Peter Werby, and some others who will be holding a panel discussion about the idea of two Detroits. You need to pre-register for that event. You can go uh, online at the Detroit Historical Museum site to do that. But now we want to continue the conversation here about this with someone else who has spent a lot of time thinking about it. Alan Malik is the author of The Divided City. Uh, it takes an in-depth look at the revival and growing inequality of Detroit and asks, as the city continues to grow, can it once again become the place of hope and opportunity it once was. Alan Malik, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Happy uh, to be here. Yeah, so let's start with uh, this book, uh, The Divided City, which takes a look at uh, uh, urban landscapes and, and sort of asks those questions about what's going on, what opportunity looks like, and for whom. Uh, what, what led you to this, uh, to this inquiry? Well, what led me is I've been spending most of my time the last, oh, 15, 20 years working in and traveling to and talking to people in cities like Detroit, mm -hmm. Cleveland, Buffalo, Cincinnati. And over that period, two things just really hit me. The first is that these cities, in some respects, are reviving spectacularly. And as somebody who was around in the 60s and 70s when cities were going downhill, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody, I think, at that point would have expected this. I mean, people were writing off the cities and mm -hmm. saying we've got to give them up and help people move out and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So one part was this amazing revival in all of these cities. The second part, though, was realizing how narrow it was and how many of the people in these cities not only weren't participating in the revival, but in many cases were actually seeing things getting worse, mm -hmm. and their neighborhoods declining, and their quality of life deteriorating, and public services declining, and their opportunity for jobs disappearing. So I felt there was this enormous <clears throat> gap between the revival on the one hand and the conditions for most of the people in these cities on the other. And I felt that was worth writing about. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the book, you you sort of 
delve into this idea of gentrification, what it means and what it doesn't mean and how concerned uh, people in these cities ought to be about uh, that term and that concept. And one of the things you, you say is that gentrification is a little bit beside the point in places like Detroit, <clears throat> that we ought to be more focused on poverty, the deep poverty that exists in a lot of neighborhoods and alleviating it. How do you, how do you separate those two issues, though? Um, okay. Well, like almost anything else, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And I don't think gentrification is entirely beside the point, because I think gentrification means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. And we've got to break that out. Okay. The first thing is, if you look at a place like Detroit, gentrification in the narrow sense, you know, affluent people are moving into a lower income neighborhood, house prices are going up, and so forth. It's very, very limited. Mm-hmm. There are little bits and pieces of it here, but there's really not much of it. At the same time, what you see in large parts of Detroit is not only continued <clears throat> continued poverty and abandonment in many areas, which is bad, but also <clears throat> neighborhoods that were reasonably healthy neighborhoods until 10, 15 years ago are declining badly, losing ground, seeing abandoned houses, seeing increased poverty, and so forth. And there's a lot more of that going on in Detroit Mm -hmm. than there is gentrification. In other words, that that the bottom is dropping faster than the top may be be rising. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are huge areas in the northwest part of the city and the northeast part of the city where you're seeing actual decline taking place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And on the other hand, for a lot of the people, and I think this is particularly true in Detroit, gentrification is about something more than the fact that a couple of neighborhoods like maybe Corktown, maybe a little bit of Woodbridge, are changing Uh in terms of incomes and house prices and stuff. It's about, I think, and I think this is the real issue in a way, that large numbers of the people in Detroit, and I'd say this is very much a racial issue, Mm -hmm. feel left out of the decisions that are being made, of the opportunities that are being created, Mm -hmm. of the change that's happening. And I think when a lot of people talk about gentrification in Detroit, it's got this undertone of having to do with powerlessness and being left out of the process. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, this idea that uh, that the decisions that are being made, that they are not a part of, are intended to benefit someone other than themselves. Right. right. Uh, and there's a narrative in Detroit about how, you know, Detroit is a blank slate where all these young people moving in can sort of reinvent the city in some ways. Mm-hmm which in many respects is very offensive sure. to the people who live here and have been working to try to make it a better place all along. Right, right. It's, um, it's almost as if those of us who have been here are being forgotten in the narrative about what's new, what's changing, uh, what, what yeah. may be coming to the city. Yeah. So that's, it's, you know, it's important to respect that and address it, but it's perhaps even more important to acknowledge 
the extent to which poverty, neighborhood decline are really the driving factors Mm -hmm. in terms of what's happening in Detroit more than what's happening in downtown and midtown. Right. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Alan Malik. He is the author of a new book called The Divided City, Poverty and Prosperity in Urban America. It spends a lot of time talking about the city of Detroit, the changes that are unfolding here, who's benefiting, who's not, and what we might think about the solutions to that disparate uh, existence. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or if you go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Let's go to Gaby in uh, Kego Harbor. Gaby? Yes. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Hi, how are you? Good. Good. Uh, I'd like to comment on the guy said about the uh, the, the Little Caesars Arena. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many Detroiters are being employed there? What's the, uh, is there a rule saying that when something's developed, it should be employed by Detroiters? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but I just feel, uh, um, you know, there's so many problems, like you're talking about know, the employment problem, housing problem. Insurance, schools, uh-huh. uh, the insurance rates. I mean, these are many, many things that these uh, the, a lot of a lot of these people is out of reach. There's no opportunities for these people, you know. So, just uh, there's a comment there. That's yeah. all. Uh, Gabe, I appreciate the, the call and the comments. Uh, Alan, uh, yeah. uh, when we talk about something like Little Caesars Arena, where we saw uh, very, uh, uh, we, we saw an effort to include Detroiters in the jobs that were uh, available to build the stadium, and we saw a lot of contractors not meet the requirements. Uh, they all said uh, that they tried, but were not able to find enough qualified Detroiters to fulfill that. Um, but I, but I'm I'm curious because you've looked at several different cities. I'm curious how different uh, what we do here with those kinds of projects is from what you see in in, in other cities. I think <clears throat> I think it's a pretty common pattern. But I and I think Detroit is maybe a little to one end of the spectrum. But it's not that different. But let me back up a little bit because this is part of a large, very large picture. If we look at the jobs in Detroit, the amazing thing is that close to three-quarters of those jobs are being held by people who commute from the suburbs. That's right. That's right. And another interesting thing is that almost three out of five of those jobs are held by white people, even though we know that about 80% of the population of the city is African American. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think this is a, there's this huge gap. And actually, the number of people who live in the city and have jobs has actually gone down significantly yes. in the last 10 years. So what you've got is a huge mismatch in terms of the people who live in the city and who's working in the city. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of things that go into it, but I think the question of what kind of education and what kind of training opportunities people who live in the city 
have access to mm-hmm. is, I think, a fundamental issue. Yeah, yeah. And just one other comment uh-huh. on that is when we talk about training, I think there's a lot of people seem to think that if you have a job for you know, in construction or in a hospital or what have you, what you do is you set up a training program, you invite people to come in, get the training for that job, and then they go into that job. And it's not that simple mm-hmm. because people have, first, they've got huge education deficits. They, they need soft skills. They have legal disabilities. You know, like a lot of them have lost their license or have criti- criminal records. A lot of people who live in the inner city suffer from trauma that makes it difficult for them to hold a job and need to address those issues. So dealing with this issue is complicated. It's doable. There are people out there who do it, but it really takes a huge effort. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to John in Gross Point. John, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I find this whole conversation fascinating. I, both of my parents were native Detroiters whose families moved to Oakland County suburbs um, after the riots. And I grew up in Oakland County, went to college here in Michigan. When I graduated in the mid-2000s, there, there were no jobs. Uh-huh. I left and met my wife on the East Coast, and we just moved back last summer. We very much wanted to live in Detroit, but, uh, you know, on the verge of starting a family... The options for housing in a nice area with access to good education, uh, public education, um, just just not even an option. So we ended up in Gross Point, and my job takes me to the east side, to the west side, mm-hmm. downtown, and it is very insular. The, the comeback is just in that corridor downtown. And when I'm mm-hmm. driving through these, these neighborhoods, um, I am just astonished at the state of the homes and, and the people living there, I mean, it's it's so sad. So it is a tale of two cities. And, and I'd love to know, Aaron, your, your, your take on all this is so interesting. You know, what is the critical mass point that hmm. we need to reach? And I'm sure it's a complex answer to a somewhat simple question, yeah. um, whether it's jobs, education, opportunities, funding, the whole, the whole thing. But what critical mass do we need to reach before that revival that downtown has? actually does spill out to the other 95% right. of the Detroit zip code. Uh, John, that is a that is a fantastic uh, uh, question. Uh, Alan Malik, uh, this idea that um, that if we keep going and if we keep attracting investment in downtown and midtown, does it reach a point where it automatically spills over into the neighborhoods? Uh, or does there have to be sort of a more active effort to make sure that what happens in those places has benefit for the people in other, yeah. in other places. I think it's the latter. I don't think it's going to automatically spill over because I think what's going to happen, if you don't figure out how to deal with questions like education, mm-hmm. decent housing, quality of life in the neighborhoods, you know, you can have lots of people living in those towers downtown, but when they get to the point where they're thinking seriously about raising a family, they're going to leave. Yeah. They're going to leave. And so... It, a huge part of this comes down to how do you deal with creating opportunity for people so you start lifting people out of poverty, and how do you create an education system that people of all 
income levels, backgrounds, and so forth, Mm -hmm. can feel comfortable sending their kids to, Mm -hmm. as well as create neighborhoods that are attractive and safe. Now, I think the city is certainly thinking about these issues. They're not, you know, it's not like the city of Detroit is indifferent or unaware of these issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's a tough, tough thing to handle. And so far, they, the, the critical mass or the demand or, you know, somehow there's still something missing. Yeah. Uh, but it's not going to happen automatically. Yeah, John. Again, thanks very much for the call and that really, that really great question. Let's go to Eric. Eric in Detroit. Uh, welcome to Detroit today. Thanks for having me on. Uh-huh. Um, I was actually at a conference in Buffalo with Alan last week, so it's nice to hear him on the air today. <laughs> ah, that's cool. But, uh, yeah. It, so it it seems like our biggest problem. Um, is concentrated wealth and concentrated poverty, uh-huh. and not just in the city, but you're kind of starting to see that even in the inner ring suburbs. So, sure. you know, I work with Preservation Detroit, and one of the reasons why we helped out with the Cass Henry Historic District was is it's in part an attempt to give a space for mixed-income neighborhoods. So my, my question for Alan is, what are some of the ways we can link outcomes in lower-income neighborhoods to wealthier ones and kind of bridge that gap? Hmm. Hmm. Great question, Eric. Okay. Uh, thanks yeah. for the call. Go ahead, Alan. Yeah, I wish I had the answers to these questions. So. <laughs> but I think first, I think you put your finger on something really important, because what's happening in the cities <clears throat> is not just about what's happening nationally, but it's certainly powerfully affected by it, which is the extent to which, as people say, the middle class is being hollowed out, and we have more poor or near poor people mm-hmm. and more wealthy or near wealthy people and fewer and fewer in the middle. And that makes it a lot harder for cities that were built historically around the notion of a large middle class and solid working class population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So given that, I think what we really have to do is look at neighborhoods that can become family neighborhoods. I don't think the answer is going to be found in downtown. Mm -hmm. The answer is how do you create neighborhoods that are family neighborhoods and that can be economically and racially integrated ones? And I think this involves really looking at neighborhoods very holistically. How can you both create affordable housing and encourage more affluent people to buy homes how can you, again, provide good education? I think an interesting case in St. Louis, a bunch of parents, and this was a, a racially and economically diverse group of parents, decided that they were going to create a school to f- both foster integration and quality education. They got a charter mm-hmm. and they created a K-8 Montessori school called City Garden. And it has been an incredibly successful school Uh and has drawn people to that neighborhood. And their ongoing goal is to make sure that 50% of their students are eligible for free or reduced price lunch, which means they're poor or near poor. Right. And we need more of that kind of thing. Right. Instead of, frankly, you know, for-profit companies coming in setting up charter schools without any accountability and offering kids free bikes if they their parents sign them up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, Alan Malik, author of The Divided City, Poverty and Prosperity in Urban America. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Well, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. All right, up next, the Detroit Journalism Cooperative recently interviewed most of the gubernatorial candidates here in Michigan in extended sit-down sessions. We're going to hear about some of the more surprising answers they gave next. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today.